you'll join me in your Bibles in Romans chapter 5. Romans chapter 5, verses 16 and 17. This morning, you can find it on page 942 in the blue ESV Bibles in the backs of the chair. Page 942. The title of our sermon this morning is, My Hope is Built on Nothing Less. And our key words for our worshipers in training are righteousness, hope, and death. There's a, a fairly recent Gallup poll that found that 82% of non-Christian Americans believe the statement, God helps those who help themselves, is found in the Bible. 82%. And those are non-Christians, so we shouldn't expect them to answer any differently. They probably don't read their Bible. They certainly don't understand grace, so that sort of makes sense that they would believe that. You do your part, God will do His. So that's not a shocking uh, sort of revelation for us from this poll. But wait, there's more. <laughs> 81% of those who took the survey and claimed to be Christians also believe the quote, God helps those who help themselves, is found in the Bible. Now that does not speak well of their understanding, not just of the scriptures, but more specifically and most importantly of the gospel. 1% less than non-Christians, professing Christians, think God helps those who help themselves. Now, maybe you've not thought of it in those terms. Another way I've heard people say it is, I need to do my part and God is going to help me do the rest. But is that what we know to be true about the gospel? Maybe you're thinking, well, that quote may not be in the Bible, but really what's wrong with that statement? Isn't it true? Well, it's actually the exact opposite of what the gospel really is. It's a complete and total misunderstanding of what grace actually is. A lot of people think about grace simply that it's a word that means, that is another way of saying love. But love and grace are different. Grace includes love, but you can show love or receive love without grace being involved in it. We're not saved by love. We are saved by grace through faith. There's a big difference. Love is uh, love as an action is, is our doing something or someone doing good to us or for us. So if you love me, you're going to show that love in the way that you treat me, in the way that, in the way that you're serving me, in the way that you talk about me, and vice versa. We do that for one another if we love each other. But you see, grace goes well beyond that. Grace says there's something about you that does, that, that does not deserve this good, but I'm going to do it anyway. Grace is love shown to someone who deserves the opposite. It's not an experience of love that transforms you. It's an experience of sovereign grace. In fact, to really understand what grace is, to understand what grace is is to understand that you are being shown love that you don't deserve. It's when you, when you show love that you don't deserve, when in fact you actually deserve exactly the opposite of that. So for example, you might come to me and say, um, I need to borrow your car for a day. Mine is broken down. I can't afford to fix it. Um, I don't have the money to do that. I really need to get to my job. So can I borrow your car? So I might look at the situation and say, fine, you can use my car. That's no problem. That's me showing you love by giving you something 
that you didn't earn, that I don't owe to you, but that's, that's love. I'm under, I'm under no obligation, so I let you use my car. You'll be delighted and grateful, hopefully, but that's not really grace. That's not grace. Grace means not only showing love and doing good to someone you don't owe it to, but to someone to whom you owe the opposite. So I could say, borrow my car, The last time, you didn't even ask about my car. You actually stole my car and wrecked it and never paid a dime toward helping me get a new one. And in fact, I'm going to report you for that because you have the audacity to borrow, to ask me to borrow my car in light of what you've done before. And that response would be completely just in accordance with the law. But now how do you respond to that situation with grace? A response of grace might be to say, you know what, you, you, des- you deserve for me to report you, you deserve for me to, uh, to gain back what you have destroyed financially, but not only can you borrow my car, you can have it. It's yours. Now, don't get any ideas. I can't give you my car. <laughs> but, but grace is doing good to someone who deserves exactly the opposite, and even going above and beyond what is asked or hoped for. And so as a result, grace is always expensive to the giver and is always coming as a shock and a surprise to the receiver. And I've told the story before uh, from the book of, uh, from Les Mis, uh, most of you know the musical or the book by Victor Hugo. There's a man in the story named Jean Valjean. And it's a perfect example of grace. Jean Valjean was a man who was originally put in prison over uh, an injustice that happened. He shouldn't have been there, but eventually he becomes an actual criminal because he sort of gets hardened and embittered over his situation by the abuse that he gets and, and the bias and the opposition and the bigotry and the injustice in his own life. So he develops into a criminal, and his attitude is, everybody has hurt me, everybody has misused me, uh, so I'm going to hurt and misuse them in return. Well, Jean Valjean is released from prison. Um, he's an ex-convict now. He's, he's taken in by a bishop. And the bishop brings him to his home out of the goodness of his heart. And when the bishop's back is turned, Jean Valjean steals the silver cutlery from the bishop's uh, extremely valuable silver. He takes it for himself and he, he runs off. He goes out through the garden, and eventually the police catch him. They see this this beggarly-looking man with all of this extremely valuable silver. They look at it, and they very quickly realize it belongs to the bishop. So they bring Jean Valjean back to the bishop, and all he has to say is, that is mine, he has stole it from me, and they will put him right back in prison where he came from. But instead, the bishop looks at Valjean, and he says, Well, of course I gave him the silver. But my dear friend, I also gave you the candlesticks. Why didn't you take them as well? Here, have it all. And then he looks at him and he says, Now go in peace, and I want you to know you are always welcome here. That is grace. This was the bishop doing good to someone who deserved exactly the opposite It's not just that he doesn't owe Jean Valjean. He doesn't, but he owes him, in fact, he owes him punishment. Instead, he gives him grace. As a result, 
It's very expensive to the giver, right? In this case, it was very expensive. Look, look at what he loses. But, but secondly, it's, it's completely shocking because it's completely unpredictable. And here's the thing you may not understand. Grace is always humbling. That's the reason why Paul says, for by grace you've been saved through faith. It is not of your own doing. It is the gift of God. Why? So that no one may boast. If you've received the grace of God, truly, it has humbled you to the dust. It has radically changed your life. Uh, Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones wrote this, If a man delights in free grace, you can be sure he is a man who has seen his utter sinfulness and hopelessness and helplessness. So you see, a, a person who really understands that, that God has not just given you love, but completely undeserved love at an incredible cost to himself, for you to receive grace means you will have a completely different life. Not just a cleaned up, better version of who you were before, but a completely new life, a completely new creation. And as we continue thinking this morning on this series on, on Christian assurance, I really want us to focus on what God has actually done in the gospel because we, we just really have a hard time grasping the reality of it, as simple as it may sound. In theory, we might get it. In, in conversations, we might be able to talk about it. In concept, we might be able to theologize about the gospel. But when it actually comes to believing it, and applying it to our lives, we really struggle to see it play out because it's really so unbelievable. And as I, I've thought more and more about what keeps us from having real, lasting, deep assurance in our standing with God, and I've talked to many, many Christians who've, who've struggled with assurance, this is what's truly going on. We really struggle to believe the gospel. And I understand why. I struggle to believe the gospel. Why? Because grace shocks us. Because we just have a really hard time accepting the fact that we're receiving something that we know we did not earn. We're receiving something that we, we know we don't deserve. We're receiving something that's the exact opposite of what we should receive. And, and this is why it's so tempting to think, well... I must have to sleep on a bed of nails or walk on hot coals or whip myself or take a vow of poverty or, or live in silence. I have to prove in some way that I actually do deserve this. I have to find a way to show that I'm worth this. And if I don't, I, I can't be sure that I'm saved. I can't convince myself of that. And yet, the Bible's constantly saying to you, no, that's not how it works. If you're a Christian, it's not because of you. If it was because of you, you would have something to boast about. But it's not because of you. So the only thing you can do is to close your mouth. You have nothing to say about yourself that's going to earn your favor with God. And this is something that is so offensive to many people about the gospel because we have to come to a place where we receive God's gift of grace. And to do that, we have to be able to say, yeah, I need this. I need something that I don't deserve, which is the exact opposite of what I deserve. And so we have to admit what we actually deserve and we don't want to because we really think we're pretty good people. 
And so our tendency is to actually run away from that because we're filled with pride and self-righteousness and think we should be thought of a lot higher than the gospel itself. But if you really recognize who you are, you don't see this as demeaning. You don't think it's primitive. You, you don't think it's beneath you. You don't think of all of your intellectual objections to it all. There's a heart that says, uh, I can pay my own way. Who are you to say that all those things are true of me? You don't have that kind of heart when you know what grace is and how it's being offered to you. The Bible says, sorry, buddy, salvation is all of grace. Salvation is not from you or by you. It is a gift of God, not because of anything you've done, but completely and solely by grace alone so that you have nothing to say. You've contributed nothing. And by the way, it cost God the Father His Son that He might have grace to give to you. So, we've said a lot already, but we need to look at the text. But I'm I'm convinced that if Christians really understand and believe and can articulate the gospel to themselves every single day, first and foremost, we will not nearly struggle as much as we do with sin in our lives and as a result with assurance. Listen, I really hope today that you're thinking about this question. What is the gospel? I've asked a lot of you that question before. What is the gospel? And if you don't have a short 30-second, one-minute way of answering that question, then you need to get to where you have a short 30-second, one-minute answer to that question. Because what are you going to preach to yourself when you're struggling, when you're upside down, when you, when you think the world is against you, and it is, how are you going to answer that question of how do I know I'm okay with God? Well, I need to know the gospel and I need to preach it to myself. What is the gospel? Ask each other that on the car ride home today. What is the gospel? And help each other to articulate that. So let's read Romans chapter 5, verses 16 and 17. And the free gift is not like the result of that one man's sin, for the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation, but the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. For if, because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through that one man, Jesus Christ. Now, In the text, we are entering into the middle of the Apostle Paul's comparison between the sin of Adam, which he did and and that came on all of mankind, and the righteousness of Christ and what, what he has secured for mankind. And so we have the overall premise that Adam was the first man and Adam failed at fulfilling what God gave him to do. And as a result of that, All of creation fail, and so we need the second Adam, Jesus Christ, who fulfilled what Adam did not fulfill or do, and we could not. We could not do what Christ did. Adam did not do what he was supposed to do, so Christ did it. So as the argument progresses, Paul is showing how Adam and Christ are no way uh, alike that, that Christ is the great second Adam who did what hadn't been done. So, so Paul's going to be discussing here a free gift. And toward the end of verse 17, you see the free gift he's talking about. What is it? It's, it's righteousness. You see that. He writes, the free gift of righteousness. And it's on that gift of righteousness that Christian hope is built. 
It's on that righteousness of Christ that we stand, justified, heaven-bound believers. So that's where he's going here. So, so where do we gain assurance from Paul's argument here? First is that the grace of God is far more powerful than your sin. Paul writes, the free gift of righteousness is not like the result of that one man's sin. So to be clear, he's referring back to Genesis chapter 3. Adam eating of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil when he was told not to. And he's saying the gift of righteousness that's received by faith in Christ does not result in judgment like the sin of Adam resulted in for all of mankind. So you and I and everyone born is either in Adam or in Christ. Those are the two categories of people. Now all of us are born in Adam. Every one of us, as we are conceived in the womb, we are sons and daughters of Adam. But by God's grace, through faith, we can become those who are in Christ. And Paul emphasizes that, and he says, for the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation. That's Adam's sin he's talking about. But he says, the free gift is not like that. The free gift following many trespasses brought justification. So he's making a contrast here. I hope you see that. The words are very important. One transgression from Adam led to condemnation of all of creation. One sin, global condemnation. Many transgressions, that's all of our sin, when we're in Christ, leads to justification. So what is he saying? The grace of God is far more powerful than your sin. He's saying, look, Adam sinned one time and that was enough for all of creation to fall. However, you and you and you and you, you sin all the time over and over again. And the grace of God is greater than that because of the grace of God in Christ, you can be justified. And so one sin's enough for all of creation to be condemned, and it was. However, the grace of God is so powerful that that one sin multiplied times the trillions and trillions and gajillions of sins that will be committed by God's people over the course of mankind's history will be forgiven. Now here's the deal. Condemnation is a natural and fitting response to sin. It's just. It is just. But remember, we said if you've previously stolen and wrecked my car when you asked to borrow it next time, the natural and fitting response is for me to call the cops. But justification is not a natural or fitting response to sin, is it? It's not fitting to one sin, let alone all of my sin. So Paul's emphasizing the fact that grace has overcome the reality that this single transgression calls for condemnation and so many Sins call for everlasting condemnation, but grace has overthrown that. And the thing that really highlights the power and the significance of grace is that it overcomes these obstacles by a substitute being provided, an alien righteousness, we say. In other words, a right standing before God that was not ours, but belonged to someone else and was credited to us. Christ was righteous for us, and so now we can be justified despite our many transgressions. And this is one of the ways we can be strengthened in our assurance. It's, it's Paul's intent to encourage us here. Here's the most simple terminology of what Paul is saying. 
Your sin is great, but the grace of God in the Lord Jesus Christ is greater. The free gift of righteousness that Christ provides for all who trust in him is big enough, is powerful enough, is sufficient enough to overcome not just one sin, but all of your transgressions. God justifies us by a free gift. What does free mean? It means you didn't earn it. It means you didn't pay for it. And as a result of that, you certainly didn't deserve it. But it is yours, and the results of it are that you are justified. That's the gift of Christ's righteousness that is far greater than your many transgressions. Now, perhaps it may seem minor at first, but it's incredibly important that we understand what this free gift is. Notice, I mentioned that already, the free gift is righteousness. And the free gift of righteousness results in justification. So let me put the pieces together and explain why that's so important. The free gift came because there were many trespasses. And the free gift, which is the righteousness of Christ, is credited to you so that you can be justified. It's not just a new relationship with God. It's a completely new legal standing before the judge on the basis of what Christ did for you in his obedience to the law, in his death on the cross, in his resurrection from the dead. And here's why that's important. I believe the number one most significant and prevalent theological error that exists today is the confusion between justification and sanctification. I have many, many conversations with Christians who confuse the two, and I believe one of the most significant ways we find ourselves lacking in assurance is because of this problem. Just this week, I was having a discussion with a friend. He saw a a church sign, and he took a picture of it and sent it to me, and here's what it said. Belief in God will not earn you a spot in heaven. Obedience will. It's an evangelical church. Now, on the surface, without much thought, maybe that sounds okay to you. Maybe it sounds like they're emphasizing that you don't have to work. uh, Your salvation is not just by saying I believe in Christ, but I have to actually show that I'm a Christian based on the life that I live. There would be fruit in my life. That's a very generous reading of what it's saying. But it says your obedience will earn you a spot in heaven. That's what it actually says. But that's not the gospel. That's a denial of the gospel. The gospel says Christ's obedience will earn you a spot in heaven. It's not anything you've done. It's not anything in the way that you have done it. You're not good enough. You're not smart enough. You're not good looking enough. You're not rich enough, poor enough, faithful enough, sick or healthy enough. You cannot earn your spot in heaven. You're dead in trespasses and sins. You have many, many, many transgressions. And if it's not for the overwhelmingly powerful sovereign grace of God, you will not be justified. But the free gift of righteousness in Christ is credited to us and makes us justifiable by the Father. Now, when you hear that, you say, why wouldn't anyone want to believe that? And yet you know the own struggle that you have in your heart to believe that because it's so overwhelmingly unbelievable. 
Brothers and sisters, if you are in Christ, you're not called to earn anything. And so when you fail again, when you sin again, when you lash out again in anger at your children or your spouse, or when you say or do things that bring guilt and shame because you know it's sin and it doesn't glorify God, your first thought doesn't have to be, I wonder if I'm even a Christian. How can I be a Christian? I wouldn't do that if I were a Christian. No, your first thought should be, thank God that I'm a Christian because I'm broken and because I'm sinful but the grace of God is far greater than any of my transgressions and so I am forgiven and now I'm freed up to go and to reconcile with those people because I'm reconciled to God by the work and the life and the death and the resurrection of Jesus. Thank God I'm a Christian when I sin because now I don't have to look to myself to make it all better. I look to God and I know that in Christ I see a difference. I see a difference that I don't have to run away in fear and hide from him, but I know that Christ has paid the penalty. And so I can go now and make things right with others. I can now live my life in a way pleasing to God because it's not up to me to pay all of the debt that I owe because Christ has already paid it for me. I hope when we sin that that's what we're preaching to ourselves. Thank God that I'm a Christian. Why? So I can go out and sin more? No. No, not at all. Thank God I'm a Christian so that when I do sin, inevitably it's going to happen, that I know that I'm still safe with God in Christ. That I know that it doesn't matter what you think about me. It doesn't matter in the end how you respond to me trying to make it right because I'm right with God in Christ. That is grace, far greater than, more, than the most significant sin you've ever committed. Now listen, when you read the Gospels, when you read Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, you see the life of the Lord Jesus being lived out in perfect righteousness. And sometimes we look at that and we start saying, well, he's showing an example of how we're supposed to live. And that's not entirely inaccurate, but it's very incomplete. Jesus isn't just giving you an example to look to. No, he's laying the foundation for your acceptance before God. He's securing that free gift that he can credit to you so that by the grace of God, through faith alone, you can be justified. When we read about the life of Jesus in the Gospels, what is he doing? He's doing everything that's necessary so that you can be saved. So in that regard, if you're lacking in assurance, you're really asking Hear me now, if you're lacking in assurance and if you're always saying, can I be a Christian, what are you really saying? You're saying, was Jesus really enough? Did Jesus really do enough? Was all that he did and the way that he did it, was that really enough? Does that honor God? Ironically, it seems that we so often think that we're being humble when we look at our own sin and we say, I'm so sinful, I don't know how God could save me. I can't possibly be a Christian. When in reality, what you're actually saying is my transgressions are greater than the grace of God. God's grace isn't powerful enough to overcome my sin. That's what we're saying. 
And so we need to be assured that the grace of God is far greater than any of our sins. And brothers and sisters, we can have assurance because God's, God's grace comes upon us over and over and over again in abundance that we can never dry up. That well will never go dry and it will always cover all of our transgressions and it is far, far, far greater than anything that we could even hope or imagine and certainly far greater than anything we could think to earn. Well, the other thing Paul shows us in the text this morning is that death no longer reigns because of the righteousness that Christ provides. Look again, verse 17, Paul says that one man, by Adam's sin, by his transgression, death reigned. Death had dominion. Death has all the power. And you and I both know that the people of the world live under that reality, right? Everyone is scared out of their minds about death. You ever think about that? Everyone's trying to live forever. And you know full well that we won't. What's behind all of the lotions and creams and wrinkle removers and bomb shelters and everything? What is behind all of that? This idea that maybe, maybe, maybe we can just look younger and feel younger and maybe extend our lives a little bit. Why? Because we're scared of death. And so we try to stay as far away from it as we can. But death remains in those who remain in Adam and it's a fearful place to be. It's one of the reasons even Christians rebel when we encounter death because it's not what we were designed for. We know inherently, every human being knows inherently that we weren't created to die, and yet physically we do. We die. Death is real, and in a fallen world, it's what happens. But even when we come face to face with the reality of death, we still never really like to think about the fact that it's going to be us soon. But it will. And yet there's something deep within human nature that says this is not the way it's supposed to be. Do you know why? you know why we think that? Because it's true. It's not the way it's supposed to be. Nevertheless, the trespass resulted in death. Worse, the trespass shut out the presence of God. But by another act, by an act of immeasurable grace, a grace gift, the gift that followed many trespasses, brought about justification. So you and I, men and women, may, may stand before God and be declared just, even though we're not. Why? Because someone else bore our sins on his body on a tree, absorbed the penalty, absorbed the guilt, and as a result, we may be justified. And what's the result? Notice, it's not, Paul doesn't say it's, it's that death no longer reigns, but life now reigns. He doesn't say that. That's good news in and of itself to have life, but it's not good enough for God. Everything God does is far greater than what we could imagine. God is full of grace, full of mercy, full of love, full of goodness and kindness and faithfulness toward his people. The abundance of grace is not just that we have life. What does Paul write? Because of one man's trespass, death reigned through one man, okay? But for those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness, reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. 
Now, this is the language. Death reigned, but now it's not life that reigns. It's those who are under the righteousness of Christ that reign by that one man, Jesus Christ. So it's not death that no longer rules and, and life does. No, he says that one day through Jesus Christ, we will move from being ruled by death to becoming rulers ourselves in life. So you see, I mentioned last week, one of the promises of God is that inheritance that we're looking forward to. And what is that inheritance in your life? It's, it's the world. You and I who are in Christ, we will be made monarchs in the age to come. It's all ours. And again, as I said last week, that frees us up from the mindset of having to earn and gain and take and hoard because we don't need all that we can have in this world, in this life, because soon, brothers and sisters, soon it will all be ours anyway. And that should give us hope. And we can have assurance in this Because we're reminded once again that all that comes from the hand of God, and if God is so willing to give such amazing gifts to his children that we would inherit the world, surely he's not going to let you go. Surely you are his now and forevermore if you are in Christ. It's a reminder of the fact that we don't need to try to have it all in this life. We don't need to give ourselves over to trying to earn something in our own righteousness. We have Christ, and that's credited to all of our accounts, and we can build all of our hope and all of our trust and all our assurance on the solid rock of Jesus Christ and His righteousness. I don't need anything else. You see, so often we try to motivate ourselves to obedience negatively. It's like we kind of get in front of the mirror and we say, you're a terrible sinner. You need to try harder. You need to do better. You're always going to be a terrible and awful person. What are you doing? But what does God say? How does God respond? He says, you are terrible. You are an awful sinner. And so for that reason, I have given my super abundance of grace that if you have faith in Jesus Christ, you will reign forever in him. Who's taken out of the equation? You are. This isn't about you doing and earning and gaining. This is about Christ's work. It's about Christ working and dying and raising and living and reigning and ruling and, and our getting to join Him in all of that. So, you see, if you're, if you're struggling with assurance because you recognize that you're a vile person, <laughs> I am too. At the heart of it all, if I'm honest with myself and really evaluate the things that I think about, the ways that I think about them, the ways that I deceive and respond with pride and impatience and use harsh words to cut others down or gossip and lie or whatever else I do, yeah, I'm a vile person. But you know what? Jesus said he didn't come for the righteous. He came for vile people. He came for sinners like you and me. And so my assurance rests in the fact that I know that I know that I know that I'm a sinner. And so I can know that I know that I know that Jesus came for people like me. And I know that his grace is so powerful that it covers all of my transgressions. And because of that, I need not fear death because Christ has provided a righteousness that I am am given as a gift to stand in. Are you preaching that to yourself every day? 
When you sin, do you say, thank God, I'm a Christian? I want you to ask one another today, what is the gospel? And I hope you'll help one another answer that question. If you're, if you're going to have assurance, we need to be able to answer that question. And part of your answer to that question is that you receive a free gift to cover all of your many transgressions in Jesus Christ. That's where our assurance lies, brothers and sisters, on the solid rock of Jesus Christ and his righteousness alone. Everything else, everything else is sinking sand. Amen. Let's pray together. Father, any words that we could offer seem inadequate to give thanks to you for the grace that you have given that we might reign in the life to come. When all of us get real with ourselves and recognize what and who we truly are, we are made all the more aware of what we truly do not deserve. And yet you have given far above and beyond even what we could imagine in the Lord Jesus Christ. And so I pray, God, for those who are in Christ that we would stand firmly and assuredly on His righteousness alone. And for those who are not in Christ that they would consider today, what am I standing on? What am I hoping in? How will I move beyond this life through the grave to the life to come? And Father, if they're, if they're resting on their own works, on their good deeds, on their own righteousness, I pray that you would humble them and break them, that they would be brought to the end of themselves, that they might see Christ as their only hope, and that their longing in their heart would be to know and to love and to abide in Jesus alone. And we pray, O oh God, you would do that for each and every one who doesn't know Christ and for those who do, that we would rejoice in that great truth and remind ourselves of it day by day by day so that we could be assured that you have loved us so much that you gave your Son for us that we might live and reign and rule with him forever and ever. Thank you, O oh God. Thank you for your grace. Thank you for the gospel. And thank you for the righteousness of Christ. In his name we pray. Amen.